Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you're anything like me, when you're listening to a podcast and at the beginning when they usually advertise a bunch of stuff, uh, I usually click that little 30-second forward button until it gets through all the advertisements, and then I just want to get to the content of the podcast. I don't know if you guys do that. <laughs> of course you do that. <laughs> uh, don't do that for this episode because I have a great, great deal I want to tell you about. There's a promotion that we're running for the month of November. The promotion is for our small group leaders kit. The small group leaders kit uh, includes both Grace Truth 1.0 and Grace Truth 2.0, both the DVDs that go along with those uh, those uh, small group studies and also a leader's guide. All of this is included in the kit. Now, on our website, centerforfaith.com, we have a store link and we're selling the product, the small group leaders kit for $39.95. For the month of November, we are going to sell it for $20 for the month of November, 50% off of the small group leaders kit. If you enter in the promotional code raw, W-A- or sorry, W-A-R-A-W, R-A-W, that's raw. So if you want to take advantage of this 50% limited time offer of the small group leaders kit for Grace Truth 1.0 and 2.0, then enter in the promotional code raw, R-A-W, and you get 50% off. So the, I mean, this, uh, this study guide or this small group learning experience it engages questions about faith, sexuality, and gender. It talks about theology, talks about Bible passages. We look at Genesis. We look at Romans. We also look at relationships. We look at uh, pushbacks to the traditional view of marriage. We looked at what it means to love LGBT people from the perspective of a traditional view of sexuality and marriage. It's an A to Z resource to help churches, to help Christians, to help anybody who wants to engage this conversation on an in-depth yet clear and balanced way. So that's the small group leaders kit, Grace Truth 1.0, 2.0. All you'll need to do if you want to lead a small group in this conversation is have the other people in the group to purchase just the book, the book version of Grace Truth 1.0 and 2.0. So with the small group leaders kit, you're ready to go and you just need to get books for everybody else in the group. So again, enter the promotional code R. A-W, and the website is centerforfaith.com. Go to our store link. It's the only place that you could buy this resource, and this offer will be uh, will end uh, November 30th. Okay, so for my guest today, I have on the show Scott McKnight, the Scott McKnight. Scott McKnight, if you don't know who he is, is a world-renowned New Testament scholar He's been a man of the academy. He's been a man of the church. He is passionate about understanding what the Bible says and going where the text leads. He's written, uh, he says it in the podcast, I think it's over like 70 books. And these are, some of these books are like full on like hundred, several hundred page commentaries on like James or uh, um, uh, the Pastoral Epistles. He's working on a book on the Pastoral Epistles. Anyway, Scott McKnight is an incredible voice. He's incredibly wise. He's down to earth. He's honest. He's authentic. Please welcome to Theology Nara, the Dr. Scott McKnight. Hey, 
Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. Super excited about this episode. I have on the other line, uh, Dr. Scott McKnight. Uh, I, I've already introduced Scott, so uh, we'll go ahead and jump in. Scott, are you in your basement? Because you, your room looks just like my room, and I'm in my basement. I'm definitely <laughs> in my basement. That's right. I have a two-room yeah. uh, library. So Two-room library. Two room. You're, you're, are we on, are, is this video or is this just audio? This is video. This is video. Uh, I'll turn it. Then you can see the other room has books in it. Now, as well. are these all the books that you've written or are these books? <laughs> how, how many? What, what's the number now? It's got to be in the 50s or over 50, right? How many books have you written? Um, Chris tends to keep track of this. And every now and then she'll say to me, I think you're just over. She said recently, just over 65. Just over. Oh, my gosh. And these are like real books. These aren't like. Uh, 30-day devotionals that you can kind of write in two days. Like these are, a lot of them are, I mean, commentaries that take several years to write and other pretty heavy books. I I know you've written some popular level books. Uh, Some of my smaller books have taken a year. Uh, Really? Okay. But um, I don't have many really, you know, none of those really quick ones, but I did write one for Ravi Zacharias one time. It was Jesus, and I think that took about three days, so... Okay. If so, if if somebody is listening and saying, "Okay, I can't read seventy-five books. I want to read one Scott McKnight book." <laughs> I'm going to a desert island, and I could take one Scott McKnight book. Do you have a recommendation? It would it be Jesus Creed? I mean, that that's the one that I feel like. Well, it just depends what mood you catch me in. You know, I, I tend to like my last book the most. So, okay. but I, I would say uh, King Jesus Gospel. Yeah, that'd be my second pick, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Jesus Creed is more for the Christian life. Yeah. You know? Okay. Well, why don't we, we've already kind of jumped in. Why don't you give a, just a bit of background of who you are and what you do now, um, just for the few people out there that maybe don't know who Scott McKnight is. Well, I'm a professor at Northern Seminary. I teach New Testament. This is my, I think my 35th year of being a professor. Wow. I taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I tell everybody that I replaced Wayne Grudem. <laughs> really? I did not know that. <laughs> he was teaching New Testament, and he moved to systematics, and I replaced Wayne Grudem, and it was a step up, I always tell people. <laughs> uh, and then I, I, taught at, uh, I taught there 12 years, taught New Testament exegesis, doctoral students, etc. Then I... Um, moved to North Park University, and that's probably where people began to recognize me. Yeah. Uh, I taught there 17 years, and then I've been seven years at Northern Seminary, wow. which is uh, in Lyle uh, near Wheaton. Is that a so, Bap- American Baptist Seminary, or what's the... Yeah, yeah. Nor- uh, yeah, it's American Baptist Seminary. It has that affiliation in history. Right now, we don't have any American Baptist professors. <laughs> Uh, our president is a Southern Baptist, a moderate Southern Baptist, and uh, like I'm Anglican, David Fitch is Christian Missionary Alliance, Bob uh, Price is Christian Reformed, Cherith is going to an Episcopalian church, but she's Assembly of God, Okay. Sam, Sam Hamstra is Christian Reformed, so... That's pretty eclectic. And Inc. Ingrid uh, Farrow, our dean, well, Dennis Edwards is there now. He's Covenant. 
Mm. And Ingrid Farrell, our dean and Old Testament professor, is um, Assembly of God. Okay. So we're kind of uh, charismatic. Yeah. Liturgical-ish. Yeah. Yeah. There's some liturgy. I'm there. curious, and if this isn't, if this, if you don't feel comfortable saying this publicly, that's fine. But I, what was uh, why the move? It was a because North Park scene. Uh, yeah, you just when I think of Scott McKnight, I just think of North Park University. Was there yeah. uh, just a better, better job closer to home? Anything that. Uh, no, it wasn't closer to home. It's the same amount of time uh, commute. Uh, when I wrote Jesus Creed, uh, Preston, I began to be invited to churches. I had been sort of an academic-only mm-hmm. type uh, professor and less concerned with, let's say, ecclesial pastoral theology. Yeah. But I wanted to communicate to ordinary people the sort of things that we've learned in Jesus studies. So I wrote Jesus Creed and I got invited to churches all over the place Mm. and then to pastors conferences. And I began to shift my interests and talking and writing and whatever to pastors and churches. And then in a period of about two years, I was offered or at least uh, talked to from six different seminaries to see if I'd be interested Mm. in teaching there. And uh, I, I told Chris, my wife, uh, to, after each one of them, I'm really interested in that. Hmm. Uh, but I don't want to move, you know, to so-and-so place. Yeah. Then, uh, then Northern came my way accidentally asking for a recommendation for someone to be an adjunct. And it was David Fitch. Hmm. And I said to David, well, would you be interested in, in me full time? And he said, yes. Hmm. He said, are you joking? I said, no. And uh, two days later, I had an interview. <laughs> no way. And, I mean, I knew I was going to go if they were going to offer the job. Mm. So I wanted to teach seminary students. I wanted yeah. to teach pastors. Yeah. And uh, so that, that's what, what it was about. It wasn't – I loved North Park, and I loved my colleagues there. I, I talked to Joel yesterday. Um, so I, I miss those people. Yeah. And I, I often tell – I don't miss freshman males. <laughs> Freshman males. Why is that? They're too immature. There are too many that are too immature. Okay. Yeah. I've never. By the time they're seniors, they're fine. Okay. Okay. I've never actually taught. uh, I've I've had three teaching posts. They've all been undergrads. So I've always wondered what it would be like at a seminary level where you're, you're, you have kind of one foot in academia, but one foot in, in the church. You're training people on the front lines of ministry. So have, was it been a good move? You enjoy this in, in this love season it. of life? I love, yeah. I love, yeah, I really like, and they convinced me to start a couple programs and, and the, and these programs have been far more than I ever expected. Can you talk about that? I forgot about that. I've only seen that from a distance. Can you explain? Cause you're doing some really innovative stuff with education, aren't you? Yeah, we have, like I have a student right now, in uh, in uh, Maastricht, uh, Netherlands. Wow. And she attends our classes through the Northern Live option. And and our, the students in the class can see her as well as you can see me. Wow. And if she starts talking or asks a question, she becomes the whole screen. Wow. And I have another student right now from Australia. Hmm. And he's taking a class. I think he's at eight in the morning, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Becky in in Netherlands is at five o'clock at night or something like that. Yeah. So it, and it's been um, 
if you combine that with they come for a week mm -hmm. as an intensive and you combine that with the Facebook page, which for these students, for each cohort, we have a Facebook page, they have become close friends. Wow. And it really has been, I, I would say the best class fellowship or connections that I've ever had in my entire career. Wow. By far. Really? Nothing like it. The only thing like it was teaching Greek in a six week session at Trinity in the summers, those people became friends. What is it about the, it's just the, the, the dynamic of the class? I mean, people just given the technology and everything, they feel like they're truly there and part of the, part of the class? Yeah, yeah, I mean, for one thing, the one week intensive, Preston, really, yeah. uh, we eat lunch together, yeah. and the students, most of them eat dinner together. Wow. So they just live with one another for a week. Next year, two or three of my cohorts are renting a huge home near the seminary and they're going to all stay together. Oh, wow. Wow. And then, um, then the, uh, Facebook allows them, they have questions about syllabus. Mm -hmm. If they have questions for, for me, they just ask them on, they just ask anything. Yeah. They ask for prayer. They, people know what's going on. Hmm. Uh, and then, uh, then the class sessions, they yeah. they just feel like they're with one another again. So you're active on the Facebook account? This isn't just for the students? Yes. Like you'll jump in? Yes. And... I'm on there, yeah. Wow. I see all the comments. So. Oh, that's fantastic. Wow. Yeah. Do you know any other school that's doing something like this? I mean, this is kind of like a, a really advanced version of the hybrid, you know, because I think a lot of schools have been doing the hybrid, you know, you do online your coursework and then you come in for an intensive for a day or a week or whatever. But this, uh, the, the fact that they can be there live in the classroom, that's, that's pretty unique. It's, it's called synchronous learning. Okay. And I really don't know who else is doing it, but I am virtually certain that we're not the only ones. Yeah. Yeah. I know Denver Seminary is doing a lot of kind of satellite I stuff. Think, and... I think Denver is one I heard last week uh, that they're doing this as okay. well. Yeah. So you, you, going back to what you, your transition, you, you gained this heart, kind of renewed heart for the church and pastoral ministry. Um, I, I, from my, again, from my vantage point, from a distance, you, you seem to have a particular heart for like the younger generation. Like when discussions come up about millennials fleeing the church or this or that, like you seem to be very, you know, uh, into that conversation. Would, would that be accurate? Like that you have a heart for the next generation? Um, yes, I faded. I have faded from that since I've been at Northern. That was a part of my uh, North Park experience was to be a part of that younger generation talking. Okay. And then I was involved with this with Dan Kimball in the yeah. Regeneration Project. But I'm not, that's just kind of a West Coast thing. Okay. And it got to be very different. It's very difficult for me because I teach on Mondays mm -hmm. to go to the West Coast on a weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. And I don't like to mess around with a possible cancellation of a flight and then not make it to class. Yeah. So um, I'm not as in tune to that, but I pay attention to some of the conversations. Mm -hmm. And uh, if something new came up, I would probably I would probably read it. So when you look at the next five or ten years of let's just say American evangelicalism, and, and I mean evangelicalism in the broadest sense of the term, um, are you hopeful, excited, worried, <laughs> angry? Like how do you? We live in such polarized times, and I think that the church is kind of riding that polarization in many ways. Like, are you, uh, 
yeah, where do you, where do you see the evangelical church in five, 10 years? Well, the, there's so much diversity and there's such a difference between Southern evangelicals and Northern and West coast evangelicals. Yeah. Ain't that right? Yeah. Southern evangelicals and Southern Baptist churches, I think are gonna, they're gonna be more stable. But I think the North is, um, there's, a, there's a, a pretty steady erosion of evangelical young generation not liking the way things are done. And I don't know if they're gonna go uh, liturgical as many are, Mm -hmm. or if they're going to go mainline and whether that will be satisfactory or whether they'll, uh, they'll become nuns. Mm -hmm. uh, because I, I think there's going to be erosion and uh, slippage of numbers among Northern evangelicals. Not Catholic nuns, but N-O-N-E, yeah. right? Like just not religious right. at all. Yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe some will become nuns, but in <laughs> religious nuns. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, not, uh, I think evangelicalism is in for some rough days. Yeah, until it can find some charismatic leaders that can draw them together. It's tribal right now. More more than you've seen in the past thirty five years of your oh, involvement. Far. Really? I mean, when I I think evangelicalism was connected for several decades by Billy Graham and John Stott, mm. J I Packer. They were all lumped together as evangelical voices. Those, there are no charismatic um, voices bringing evangelicals together. Hmm. At one time, I thought the only possibility was Christianity Today, but I think they flopped and moved, moved in the direction of, of pretty much only the Reformed. Okay. Uh, Southern Baptist types, John Piper. I, I just don't see them as broad as they could be. But Tim Keller, would he compare to? He seems to kind of be a, a unifying voice, relatively speaking. Or yes, except that Keller, you see, is connected to the Gospel Coalition. Yeah. Complementarianism. Yeah. Uh, so he he has great respect. I mean, I love Tim Keller, and I think he has, you know, he has the potential, but he's aligned himself with with one of the tribes. Yeah. Uh, he's appreciated. Eugene Peterson, you see, was a voice that crossed the tribes. He was just so anti-celebrity uh, or platform yeah. that he uh, would just pastor his 300-person church like he should be doing, and I think uh, resisted. That's right. <laughs> he was not into the movement stuff. No, man. I like, what? I like him for that. But so, so to me, evangelicalism right now does not have that unifying voice. Mm. And... Um, I don't know if they can find it. I don't know if it'll be found. Somebody's going to have to arise who can say to the Gospel Coalition, you people are fine, but you're not the only ones. And who can say to the Assemblies of God people, you're fine, the Vineyard people, but you're yeah. not the only ones. And to say to the moderate progressive type evangelicals, you're fine, but you're not the only ones. Let's be together yeah. and, command, and command that kind of allegiance to one another, a, a yeah. common story rather than a tribal story. We, we where, where, where did that strong tribalism come from? Has it, has it ridden the kind of political tribalism that certainly has become more polarized? Or I mean, what, what's the, what's, or has it just been, we haven't had a Billy Graham type unifying 
leader or is you know, it the I, inter- internet, th- social media? I don't, <laughs> I don't think I have an answer to it. I, I would say the dying out of Stott and Graham or mm-hmm. the loss of voice of Graham. But in the process, people like John Piper arose with very strong voices, mm-hmm. but they were not unifying voices. Yeah, Piper is not a unifier. Uh, he is a charismatic, powerful, theological thinker, a preacher, a writer, mm-hmm. but he's, he's, he's strong on edges. And so <laughs> therefore, I mean, he, yeah. uh, he's going to be as critical of anyone who differs from him. John Stott and Billy Graham, if they were critical, they kept it to themselves or in private rooms, but in public, they wanted a platform that, yeah. that showed unity at a higher level than theological orientation. Yeah. So I, I think yeah. the dying out of that group of leaders and the tribalistic strength of the next group of people, mm. you know, yeah. Mark Driscoll, uh, Matt Chandler, uh, those, are, those have not been unifying voices. Mm. I think they believe they're unifying, but they're not appreciated by other groups as much as you would think. Yeah. So we're in a tribal period right now. That's yeah. the way it is. That's interesting. I, mean, I very much sensed that. I just didn't know if this was like some unique thing or if this is what it, it always is, you know? Because, I mean, I, you know, 20 years ago, I wasn't really paying attention to much. But I, I, th- I mean, I know, I know the period. And it's, I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not idealistic. Yeah. Carl Henry... Uh, was one of those unifying voices, but he was conservative and he was very much a political Republican, but he didn't spend his time uh, dividing people over that issue. You know, he seemed to be able to get along and listen to Jim Wallace. (laughs) Yeah. Now Jim Wallace was always fighting those people, but those, those are, those are the end of an era and our era right now is more tribal and I'm, I'm hoping that the strength of the voices will eventually give way to a, a more common vision. You mentioned just a few minutes ago um, complementarianism, how some of these tribes are part of their tribal identity is complementarian. Um, now, I know, you, you know uh, you're not complementarian. Did you – I'm going to assume growing up as an evangelical, you went to Cornerstone University – at some point, you were a complementarian, right? I mean, there was some shift yeah. in your thinking on that. Can you unpack that for us? Well, you need to read Blue Parakeet. <laughs> I haven't read it. I know. I'm, I'm scared I'll be convinced. <laughs> well, uh, a couple things happened. Um, one was um, encountering significant female leaders, having female students at Trinity early in my career, whom I was convinced were gifted to teach. Um, I had a strange moment when I was doing a PhD of having read Morna Hooker's, a couple of her articles that were, I just, they were stunningly brilliant you know, on using the wrong tool. Such uh, common sense and clarity. And I was riding my bicycle in Cambridge and I pulled up at a stop sign and next to me, was Professor Hooker on her bicycle, <laughs> and I, and I, you know, I just kind of said hello, Professor Hooker. You know, I've appreciated your writings, and um, and as I sat there, I thought to myself, 
Oh my goodness. I've learned so much from her. Any idea that women can't be teachers is just not true in my case. And it was at that point that I began to change my view just on that bicycle ride, just realizing how much I had learned from her, how she had influenced me. And that to me, writing a journal article and writing a commentary and writing a book and preaching a sermon are all a piece of instruction. So when I came back and started to teach at Trinity, I was an advocate for women in ministry. But I, I've often told this story, I kept my mouth shut at Trinity because I was concerned with other things like redaction criticism and uh, writing the things I was being asked to write about and the interests I had at that time in the Gospel of Matthew. So I stayed out of the battle that was largely warred between Walt Liefeld, Ruth Tucker, Wayne Grudem, and Doug Moo. Uh, that, that was going on, and it was not vitriolic. It was a fairly peaceful. Wayne is not really capable of turning that much into peace, but he, he can be pretty he, – he's a nice guy. Wayne and I used to ride schools together, and so I, I've always gotten along with Wayne, but he's pretty hard-headed on, on, views, uh, on that view. So he, he was pretty strong on that, and he was very critical of, of Gilbert Bilzekian. So uh, it, as I continued to teach at Trinity, I became more that way. But when I went to North Park, I became much more vocal about is it. That when, and I didn't write about it until I wrote in Blue Parakeet. Oh, is that your first written kind of presentation? Okay. About, about women in ministry, yeah. So, I mean, uh, so. I completely resonate with the – and just so – I mean, I've said this publicly on my podcast. I was raised staunchly like patriarchal – complementarian i mean I, I was groomed in macarthur circles um and yet have increasingly moved away from that position to the point to where now i'm just it's up in the air for me i just i haven't had space in my life to sit down and spend several months in first timothy 2 and and look at you know phoebe and and you know uh, well this was I mean, this is what happened i taught a course on women in ministry oh okay and in the Bible, women in the Bible in ministry. It was all, almost all female students. And I went through every uh, woman, or, or the major women in the Bible, you know, the Old Testament, Miriam, uh, uh, Huldah, Deborah, etc., yeah. Mary, etc. So uh, I, I remember coming to a conclusion as I was working through these texts in a really fresh way. Um, I was asking my students to answer this question. What did women do? You know, mm -hmm. at that time it was WJWD. You know, what did, what was it? WWJD, yeah. Whatever. What, what did Jesus, what W? WWD. <laughs> so I, I was doing WDWD. What did women do? Okay. And I, and I would ask the students, do women do these things in your church? So I was, okay. I was asking the question, um, back when I was teaching the course, uh, to, to think carefully about what women did in the pages of the Bible. And if we want to be biblical, we have to let women do those things. So, yeah. and by the time I was done teaching those courses, I taught it about five times, um, I, was, I was ready to write about it. What, what about, uh, yeah, 12 male apostles and First Timothy two and other passages. Um, are those difficulties for you? Or are they just kind of like 
you know, the, do you see the overwhelming evidence for egalitarian the position to just be more superior? But there is some evidence for a complementarian, or how do you how do you wrestle with the complementarian? No, no, I, I mean it was a patriarchal society. Uh, I think the terms complementarian. I think that term was stolen from people who are now egalitarians. Hmm. Uh, Gordon Fee and his crew uh, were using that term, and Wayne Grudem did not want to say his view was patriarchal or hierarchical. So they used the word complementarian, and they uh, had a bigger platform, and so they kind of grabbed the term. Really? <laughs> uh, yeah, Gordon Fee, there's a whole story about this, that Gordon Fee uh, was using the word complementarian for what is now called um, egalitarianism. Um, in other words, there's there's difference between male and female, but they're they're designed by God to complement one another. Sure. Equal in um, giftings, depending on what the Spirit does. So I don't like the terms complementarian or egalitarian. I often tell people I'm I don't want to be called egalitarian. I'm a mutualist, which is the original meaning of the term complementarian. The word complementarian today means hierarchicalist uh, and uh, patriarchal. I mean, really? Russ right. Moore has admitted yeah. this. That's what the <laughs> word means. The focus is not on how the genders complement one another, but on who's in charge. That's the only question <laughs> asked by the complementarians. Okay. So uh, a good I'm friend of mine, no, a good friend of mine who's on my board of my ministry, he's a pastor, been a pastor for 40 years, Huge advocate for women in, in leadership, and he his phrase he he uses is non hierarchical complementarian. That's, he, he's, that's that, the original book by yeah. Pierce and Grothuis. It was okay. called uh, um, Complementarianism Without Hierarchy. Yeah, I remember that. That was yeah. the Gordon Fee book. That's okay. the, that was the original writing of that group. Yeah, and uh, I'm not sure the relationship to biblical manhood and womanhood, but that that original book may have been a response to Pierce and Grothuis, or it may have been the other way, but yeah. I'm, it doesn't matter to me. That what what not, do you think, and, and we, we can move on to something else, but uh, if somebody like myself wanted to read, what's the best single presentation of each side of this conversation? Do you, do you have a clear kind of, you know, go-to book on each side? or? I mean, I don't think that there is a, a clear presentation on the other side. <laughs> I mean, do you think Moo or Schreiner or... Uh... Uh, I think the best little book on this topic is by R.T. France called Women in Ministry. Really? And okay. It be satisfactory for you uh, in, in some ways because it is so... It's, it's small. Okay. It doesn't get into all the fullness of the exegesis. But if there's one book that, you know, that would be more for you would be this, um, the book by Ronald Pierce and Rebecca Grutheis. Okay. Uh, that one, uh, I don't have it right here. It's in another room. Uh, I think that's, th that's the best book on the topic. Really? Okay. Uh, from the other side, um, after Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, that big uh, blue volume, yeah. I've, never, I've never spent my time, you know, just trying to map the other side. I think I understand it. And if you read any past any study of First Timothy two, the other side's views are always present. Sure. So I mean, yeah. I, you, I think you can get pretty good access to it. And so okay. I tried to make a smaller version of this argument in the last third of the Blue Parakeet. It's about women in ministry. Yeah. Okay. 
Maybe that would be the maybe, maybe that would be the one that people should go to check out. <laughs> well, of course, I want them to buy it, whether they read it or not. But uh, <laughs> I, I think the I think the RT France book is quite special. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I just uh, I, I just haven't had I've had enough controversy on my plate over the last several years, and haven't had the time or necessarily the well, I've had the interest, but just not the time to really lay out and you know. You know, you look at a commentary, a good thorough commentary on First Timothy two, and the 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 bibliography there is so overwhelming. And I'm the type of guy I want to exhaust everything that's out there. I want to wade through it all, and it's just daunting because there's so much literature on it. You know. And I'm uh, I'm writing a commentary on the pastorals right now. And I'm oh st- yeah. I'm still happy because I'm in chapter one. I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I have gotten to that stuff. Oh but, man. Uh, uh, what are what are some of the what are some theological areas where you've shifted on where you thought you had it all figured out you had it nailed down and then through further further study you're like man I've I've, I've changed my view on this. Well, um, my views tend to shift rather than suddenly uh, break and snap and change. Uh, <laughs> I don't yeah. have you know like. Um, historical type questions i drifted into gospel criticism Mm -hmm. and found myself with conclusions uh from reading and studying underlining the gospels pentateuchal criticism say Mm -hmm. authorship of daniel those sorts of things i drifted into by just paying attention to conversations over time Mm -hmm. Uh, some issues um like women in ministry I wanted to put things together, mm-hmm. but I, I was still quite open to changing and shifting. Um, I told you I didn't want to talk about the same sex issue, but I did this three different times in my career mm-hmm. where I went through all the evidence again. And after the last time I decided I'm not going to do this again, I'm, I'm done <laughs> with this conversation. And, <laughs> but, um, I would say that uh, those are the, I mean, I haven't changed my view on same-sex issues. Um, Like, yeah, I mean, I I would say over time, my mind drifts or shifts Mm -hmm. uh, lightly rather than sudden, sudden changes. Yeah, yeah. As it should, I think. I'm I'm orthodox. Okay, here's one. Infant baptism. Yeah, I became convinced in seminary that that we ought to quit fighting about this. That there are too many Christians who baptize babies. But I read a book uh, by Jeffrey Bromley, Covenants of Promise, I think it was called, and it just didn't convince me. I wanted more Bible. Yeah, uh, he was using more history, uh, church history. Uh, but it was it was the practice of. So many people I respected, Tim Keller, J.I. Packer, all the Reformed, Calvin, Luther, Wesley, they all baptized infants, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, was, I was shifting to where this is okay, let's just not fight about it. But it was in teaching Colossians all the years, and that passage where baptism is connected to circumcision, I went, Ooh. Yeah. But it was a piece of logic that I said, it's it for me. I'm done. I've, I've changed my mind. And it was, <laughs> Abraham was circumcised. And then he, he was circumcised in a sense, as a result of a profession of faith. I mm-hmm. think we can say that about Abraham. 
Yeah. Then he circumcised everybody in his family. Baptism in the first in the first century, the first converts all would have been baptized as adults. So when people say to me, sure. "Are yeah. there any infants baptized in the New Testament?" I say, "That's it's like asking point. if there were yeah. any any uh, infants circumcised between Abraham's faith and the birth of his sons." You know, yeah. no, yeah. it's unfair. So, uh, but I do think the household baptism is that way. But it was that passage and then the recognition. Um, you see this in Larry Hurtado's book, uh, Destroyer of the Gods. People in the first century did not choose their religion. Right. It was, you, you were incorporated into the faith of your father or your religious cultic practices of your family. Yeah. And I, I think that this question has to be approached. How would first century Jewish believers and Gentile believers have incorporated their children into the faith that they had? That's the question to ask. And you would have said they would have baptized them. Sure. They would have done yeah. some, there would have been some ritual. And, yeah. and Paul pretty much acknowledges that, doesn't he? First Corinthians yeah. 7. How else could yeah. your children be <laughs> sanctified, made holy? And household baptism, you know, Jeremias made the great case that um, you would never have used that term if all you were talking about were the adults. Right. So household will always include everybody in the household. And in many of them, you can't have eight household baptisms in the New Testament without some infants being involved. Interesting. So you're, you're an Anglican teaching at a Baptist seminary. <laughs> yes, but Advocating well, for infant before baptism. me was Robert Weber. Was there anyone more advocating of Anglicanism than Robert Weber? Yeah. He taught at Northern. Northern's no, wait. been open. So when you haven't always been Anglican, right? I mean, is this a recent uh, conversion? For me? Yeah. Uh, eight years ago. Okay. Yeah. So, what were you before? Were you, I thought you were a Mennonite, or is that just in, well, I'm, in ideology? I'm still Anabaptist. I think you can be an Anabaptist Anglican. Okay. So, okay. uh, yeah. But I've never been a Mennonite. We were, low, we were at Willow Creek for quite a while. Oh, right. Years. Yeah. Can you get into that at all? Or is that all hush-hush? Not hush-hush. <laughs> it's so public. I've about <laughs> it, you know. I've been quoted in the New York Times about this issue. Yeah, what's well, going I mean, on over it's there? A, it's yeah. a really sad story of a lot of things that were going on behind the scenes uh, of an authoritarian uh, nature and yeah. of, of um, almost, you know, it was heavy hitting, um, power mongering. And, um, it, you know, there are enough stories of women about Bill Hybels that uh, the, the likelihood that they're not true is to me less than zero percent. Wow, so, that's I mean, pretty low. So it's uh, it's just no. sad. I mean, this was going on for a long time, and I don't think very many people knew. And I think the people who spoke up um, got their legs cut out from under them, and or really? paid off. Yeah. What do you want to ask? Has the church has the church recovered? I mean, how's it doing now? What's what's the future look like for for I I haven't followed it since it it's it can't recover. Yeah. That's not what happens in these situations. The, hmm. the uh, Willow Creek's attendance is significantly down. Their money is significantly down. And their only chance of ever becoming Willow again would be if they could get a really charismatic speaker for every weekend who could start drawing people. This was the, how it was yeah. built on the draw of Bill Hybels 
and then right. John Ortberg and Lee Strobel. You get, they're get, they got to get people of that magnitude who are on staff at Willow and who can help reshape the vision. And mm. it's, I think the chances right now are pretty slim. How is uh, Bill? Is he repentive? Is he, does he think he was misunderstood, misrepresented? Has he admitted all these things? Or what's that? I haven't talked to Bill. And everybody that I know has said that he uh, vitriolically defends himself and that the women are liars. Really? Wow. Okay. So, no, he hasn't repented because he doesn't think there's... He doesn't think he did anything wrong. Wow. That's that's what I'm hearing. I, I don't know. I haven't talked to him. That's what... Yeah, I mean, I know a few people on somewhat of the that have a deep history with Willow, and that's pretty much the same perspective they've shared, you know, and... Um, well, they're, they're, they, the place is, is empty hmm. on weekends. Really? I mean, wow. empty for Willow. What do they uh, usually, the they run, run what, like 20,000 typically on a Sunday, or what's the? Well, you know, I don't, you know, they have all these campuses. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure that at one time the average attendance at Willow Creek, South Barrington, was somewhere between fifteen and 18,000. Then they split campuses, so they lost some people. But um, I think it was averaging 14 or 15, maybe it was 13, and now they're down to about 7,000. Yeah, okay. Wow. So it's, uh, it's, it's sad. Uh, I, Willow is filled, was filled with good people doing good work in God's, in God's vineyard, and a lot of them are still there, and yeah. I and I hope yeah. I hope they do well. Let's uh, transition. We just have a few more minutes left. So I shot out a tweet, and it this is a few weeks ago, and it said uh, about the we we had a delay in our recording, um, but I said I'm about to record a podcast with Scott McKnight. What do you want me to ask him? So let me just scroll through some of these here. The first one comes from Doctor Darwin Gray, and Darwin Gray wants to know if Darwin Gray was your favorite student. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know, Darwin is a, a well mutual friend and was a doctoral student under you, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Darwin <laughs> is my favorite former Carolina Cougar football player. Because <laughs> you've had so many. Good, good. Um, what factors drew you to Anglicanism and or Christocentric nonviolence? What is the role of an Anglican priest within the priesthood of all believers? There's a few more questions here, but we'll just, uh, if you want to pick one yeah, of those. That's a yeah. lot. Um, the Book of Common Prayer, the centrality of Eucharist, mm. the potency of lectionary determining what you preach on rather than pet themes, mm. wow. uh, and the, I, I would just say, the wonderful fellowship of the church that we found here in our area, Church of the Redeemer, led by... Jay Greener, uh, Amanda Holm Rosengren, and Stephanie Booth. So we, uh, those, those drew me. Hmm. Okay. On passivism, I shifted on passivism as a seminary student. I think I was a seminary student when I read yeah. um, Peter Craigie's book on the problem of war in the Old Testament. Now, I don't know if I was a seminary professor or a student. It doesn't matter. I read it when it first came out, and... Uh, the odd thing is I became convinced that Peter Craigie was a Mennonite, but I only found out, and I've written about this. I mean, I've used the Mennonite Peter Craigie. I found out later he was really? an Anglican. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe he's a Methodist. Yeah. I'm not sure. 
but uh, he wasn't a Mennonite. Uh, and I, I was, I was really, if there's any problem in the Bible that tortured me, it was the, the wars. Yeah. Of the oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I just, I just read some in uh, yeah. numbers the other day. I went, Oh boy. So um, I studied that and I became very interested in that question. Then I started reading mm. Ron Sider um, and I became a pacifist in the oh, late seventies. Wow. And I've, I've maintained wow. that view ever since. Wow, good for you, yeah. So, um, uh, I don't what oh, we can move on. Was. we got a bunch here. Uh, your view of hell. Yeah. What's your view on hell? This is weird, <laughs> you know. Uh, for some reason, because I've written about it several times, people don't believe what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, I'm, I don't believe that people who are annihilationists or conditional immortalists or whatever – believe in conditional immortality. I don't think that's off the map. So people seem to think that that's what I really believe. I, I have a traditional view, but I'm soft on, on it because I don't think it's as clear in the Bible as people okay. like. Oh, so you, you, you don't identify so as believe, a, I'm an annihilationist. You say it's a legitimate kind of option. Okay. No, oh, wow. Yeah. It's legitimate. Yeah. And I think you wrote me a letter and invited me to write an essay on the annihilationist. Yeah, I know I did. Yeah. We wanted you. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, have been wrestling with that for several years. And as of last spring became convinced as much as I need to be to say, I'm, I'm an annihilationist. I think the, the biblical evidence in favor is, is from my vantage point, very overwhelming. Um, we use, uh, I use with my demon students, we do a day on this topic. Mm. And we read all the Jewish texts that are cited by Edwin Fudge yeah, in yeah. his book, which is the most complete thing. Yeah, yeah. What, what is very clear is that Judaism at the time of Jesus had both views. So anybody yeah, who yeah, thinks it was right. all one view just is wrong. And so the evidence right. of destruction that John Stott and all those people argued mm -hmm. for uh, is, is not as tight as a lot of people think. So yeah. Okay. We, we will uh, suspend drilling down deeper into that and move on to another question here. Uh, what is, what's on his music and podcast playlist? And then he has another question. So uh, do you listen to podcasts? If so, which ones? And then what's your favorite music? Okay. <laughs> I have never listened to a podcast in my life. Oh, really? I'm not offended. Not offended. <laughs> I don't listen to mine either. And I... Yeah. Our pastor's sermons are on, and I asked him Sunday, I said, if I wanted to listen to it, what would I have to do? So I've never so much as tried. Okay. Yeah, okay. On music, uh, I listen to whatever on my, um, I have, is it called iTunes? I have an account with some songs. Yeah. I listen to John Michael Talbot, Robin Mark. Uh, some worship songs, and, yeah. and that's the only ones. And I listen to Glenn Campbell, Rhinestone Cowboy, and Wichita <laughs> Lineman because oh, wow. they're there, and I listen to. Yeah, them. why not? <laughs> I, love, I love the Beatles and the Beach Boys. That's that to me is great music. Okay, you're showing your age. Yeah. <laughs> All right, one more. Uh, who are great women theologians and Bible teachers I could read or listen to so that I'm not just hearing through a male lens? So some top female teachers and theologians. Well, I would say 
read the sermons of Barbara Brown Taylor and Fleming Rutledge. Mm, yeah. They're great sermons. Uh, Ellen Davis, I think she's at Duke. Yes, yeah. At Duke. There's three people who have collected sermons and they are worth reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if they have public sermons. That you, I, I've seen, I've looked at Fleming Rutledge and Barbara Brown Taylor on YouTube to mm-hmm. see what their voice is like. Um, theologians, um, Morna Hooker. I, I think everybody should read as much Morna Hooker as they can. Everything she's written, I think people should read. Mm-hmm. Um, Lynn Coick, my friend at yeah. Denver Seminary. Yeah. I think people should read, but there is an increasing number of women voices in evangelicalism, like Sandy Richter at yeah. Westmont and um, Miriam Kamel. Uh, I can't mm-hmm. pronounce her last name now. Uh, it's Kamel. Oh, Re- yeah. <laughs> at Regent. There's just so many good ones. Cherith V. Nordling, my colleague. Uh, there's so many good ones that uh, it's, it's, it's completely changed. Sandy, Sandy Richter has, in my mind, the best kind of undergrad or even seminary level like survey of the Old Testament. I it know. Is it's so a great book. It's and we so were, I was going to yeah. propose that as our textbook at yeah. North Park when I left. When I knew I was leaving, I said, okay, yeah. I'm not going to uh, work on this anymore. So The e- Epic of Eden. Yeah. It's, it's got great graphs. It, it, it combines theology and the sociological background, culture, history, and so clear. It's so good. Yeah. yeah. Well, good. Scott, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for giving us your time. And we've got a lot of more questions I didn't get to, but uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. I I would never be caught dead wearing a Boston Red Sox hat. I'm a true Cub fan, but I do do like that that Cub fan. Red Sox. Yeah, there's a whole history behind that. Yeah, for those who can't see, I'm, I'm wearing a Boston. I'm wearing a Boston Red Sox hat, and I'm actually a Dodger fan. And it's two days after the World Series just ended, so I'm I'm a confused soul. But yeah, there's. Did you see <laughs> that's, Pete Enns had a Facebook update last night. Okay, folks, he said it's been 12 hours. The Red Sox have won. Would you please get over it? <laughs> Such a game. Good for him. Good for him. Scott, thanks so much for being on the show. Appreciate it.